the announcements, the other statements that have been made to this point this morning certainly remind us of the privilege, the treasure, and the blessing that's ours to gather on the Lord's Day morning as we are today. It has been a not only a, an occurrence, but it has been a vital part of the livelihood of faithfulness now for almost 2,000 years. Faithful individuals, men and women, who have come together on the first day of the week. As you and I continue that activity today, we do so. Sometimes in the midst of difficulties and challenges, but it shall never deter, for the Word of God shall stand triumphant, and the nature of His truth will never be moved aside. One of the things that we started off a few years ago was on the Sunday evening services, we from time to time would have questions and answers. And those, of course, were prompted by the questions that you as a congregation and individuals might, might put forward. The little box out there in the foyer, you could drop your questions anonymously in that box. And again, we would have a lesson every so often in which we'd consider them. As we all know, we've been preempted from our usual Sunday evening services for a little time now, and I thought that we might utilize this morning's lesson to address a question that someone had placed in that box. As we build up toward that this morning, a question I thought I would devote the entirety of the sermon to this question. It's a vital question. It's a question of intrigue and interest, and it's a question that will prompt you and I in many ways to seriously contemplate not only the affairs of this life, but what shall transpire on the day of judgment. It is with that in mind that these introductory thoughts will move us in the direction of the question. But to build up to that, might I begin this way. Whenever you and I think about eternity, it truly is a subject that stretches our imagination to the point where, quite frankly, it's likely we cannot fully fathom it. We are accustomed in this flesh to things that are limited in their nature. Things last for a certain amount of time and no more. Things wear out. Things have to be replaced. And to contemplate something that never, ever ends. Eternity. You and I as individuals are eternal beings in this respect. Once our beginning, once... Our livelihood, in fact, began in the womb of our mother. We, from that point forward, will never cease to be. According to the teaching of the Word of God, we are immortal spirits and we dwell for a while in this flesh. But the time will come when we will set this flesh aside and we will thus, in spirit form, dwell from that point forward. Now, it's true that we'll be given bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, that will be prepared for eternity. But suffice it to say, that body will not be exactly like this one. About the middle of that slide, you'll note that there's only two possible eternal abodes. And the Word of God highlights each of them in a fair amount of detail. On the one hand, there is this exquisite place called heaven. Exquisite because Psalm 11 verse 4 tells us that's the place where God's throne is. The, the majesty surrounded the fact that one will be in the very presence of the almighty, awesome God of heaven. But not only that, this is a place where Jesus, of course, currently reigns on His throne. Acts 1 verse 11 reminded us that when He ascended, He went back to heaven. Now, He had been there already, John 17 verses 1 to 3. But suffice it to say that the faithful of all the ages look forward to being there too. 
And Revelation 21 will detail just how grand that place is. But on the other hand, there is this terrible place called hell. It is filled, initially, you and I appreciate it was made for the devil and his angels. It's not God's will that any human be there, but the fact is some people would choose to go there. But it was made for the devil. It was made for his angels. It was made, you see, for those who would rebel against the nature of the God of heaven and his authority. With that in mind, we read that this is a place where the worm never dies. And the fires never quenched, Mark 9, 43 to 47. It's a place that's quite likely far worse than anything we could imagine. You'll notice in Revelation chapter 20 is a perhaps final description of this place. It is a place of fire and brimstone. It's a place where you see the dragon cast there and forevermore shall he be. It's a place that probably causes our heart rate to jump some when we think about it. But I might suggest in light of all of that, the question that was asked was this one. Are there degrees of punishment in hell? Are there degrees of reward in heaven? To say that slightly differently, is it going to be the case that every individual who goes to heaven will experience exactly the same thing? Exactly the same degree of bliss, the same degree of, shall we say, blessedness. And on the other hand, every soul that goes to hell, will they all be punished in exactly the same way, in exactly the same degree? That question, again, is a very interesting one. Left to ourselves, we perhaps would struggle, but thankfully we have the Word of God that will offer us some degree of consideration. And so let's start with heaven. Are there degrees, if you please, hierarchies that relate to one's enjoyment of the characteristics of heaven? Let's start with this observation. First of all, in Romans 14, 12, as Paul addressed the church in Rome, it was to them, he said, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Many things might be appreciated based on a text like that one, one of which is this. Every one of us, on an individual basis, will in fact be given the verdict of judgment on the day of judgment. Every one of us, he said, shall give account of himself. Twice the singular was highlighted in regard to the matter of judgment. It's to be sure then that there are obligations in this life that involve other people. We have obligations in our physical families, obligations in the church, obligations at the work site. But I might suggest that when it comes to the judgment, we will be judged individually. We'll not be judged by tribes, by states, by nations, but rather individually. And in many ways, aren't we thankful for that truth? But I might suggest with that, though, that that's only the first element we might note. For although it's true that we should be judged individually, look at some of these next verses that again speak about the reality of the verdict rendered that day. Many times in the Word of God we find this exact phrase, that in regard to the judgment, it shall be done so in a way according to His works. Each of us judged individually according to His works. One more time, that pronoun He is a singular but did you notice? It's according to His works. 
Even Solomon in the Old Testament made observation of that truth in Proverbs 24. But may I suggest that the words of Jesus, the very matters that came from His lips ought to fill our heart. In Matthew chapter 16, you might recall that there came a time in that chapter when the Lord made that rather unforgettable statement. He said, What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, you and I have often reflected upon that, but did you know what immediately came after it? He spoke about the Son of Man shall descend from the Father with His angels, and then He shall deliver to every man according to His works. Now, the aspect of the judgment, and you may note that word according, or at least that word according to, comes from an original word that means in correspondence to. It means corresponding to. It highlights the truth, then it's with respect to or with reference to. To put that differently, then, each person will be judged in light of or in correspondence to that which they've done. That surely indicates that there's a degree of understanding about the individuality of that judgment and the degree of reward that shall be appreciated in relation to it. No wonder in that connection, let's go ahead and notice another phrase that often occurs. In 1 Corinthians, rather 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, this statement is, is one that likely comes to our mind. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, the first part of that verse, among other things, had highlighted, indeed, this judgment's individual, but now the additional thought is highlighted, each one according to that he hath done. So here are individuals. Perhaps a number of them have all been faithful, but there's not an exactness concerning the degree of that faithfulness. And Paul, the inspired writer there, affirmed, according to that he hath done. Doesn't this highlight that so far it would seem that the degree of reward is not going to be exactly the same for everybody, but rather it's according to that he hath done. But let's study onward. Although this idea has been planted in our heart, aren't we excited to note that other verses speak about it even more carefully? I've asked you to note this statement in Matthew chapter 10. Near the close of that chapter, as the Son of God Himself was presenting this remarkable set of truths, He made the statement, if I could call it to your attention, He spoke about the reward that was going to be received by a prophet and also the reward to be received by a righteous man. The wording the Lord used is rather exquisite. It reads like this. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. We would easily notice here that there are two categories, if you please, of those that are saved. There's a prophet on the one hand, those bold and aggressive and marvelous proclaimers of the truth of God, often dealing with great challenges and difficulties and terrible opposition. On the other hand, here's a righteous man. Now we know a righteous person is one who has given his or her life to the things of God. Psalm 119, verse 172. And yet the Lord distinguished those rewards. 
there's a prophet's reward, there's a righteous man's reward, and if they're exactly the same thing, the Lord's statement doesn't mean a lot of sense. He said they're not the same. May I suggest, apparently, in the wonderful climbs of heaven, in regard to the judgment and verdict rendered, there are degrees of appreciation. There's a righteous man's reward. There's a prophet's reward. Now, all of that put in place seemingly points us to the fact that there are degrees related to the, cre- the appreciation of heaven. As we've looked at that set of ideas so far, let's close that particular slide and continue the discussion with a few more statements from the lips of our Savior. You may recall a number of parables that Jesus taught. Parables which no doubt have reflected in our heart many times. But may I invite us to think about them in connection to this question. Again, the question is, are there degrees of reward in heaven? Are there degrees of punishment in hell? Would you consider with me for a moment Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, that rather well-known parable of the talents, without rereading all of it. It went something like the following. You and I recall that as this master was about to proceed into a a distant place, he delivered his money, that which the Bible referred to as talents in that case. But we know from the way it's described, he's talking about his money. He delivered it to his servants. To one servant, he gave five talents. To another, he gave two talents. To another, he gave one talent. And then the master went away to a far distant place. Now the fact is, the time came when he returned and reckoned with the servants relative to what they had done with those talents. And then the following is presented. The five-talent man said that with the trading and usage of the five talents he had, he had gained five additional ones. The master was very pleased. You may notice, in fact, in verse 21, the master to that gentleman, that person said, In high commendation, thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. You notice that in the consideration of this question, that this is a continuation of the question that had been asked of Jesus. You may recall that in the beginning of chapter 24 of Matthew, They had asked, What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Jesus, as he answered that, in part came to describe what shall transpire at the end of the world. This is a reference to the judgment. The five-talent man had put into practice that which he had been given, that which he had had access to, and by consideration thereof, five additional had been gained, and the master was very pleased. What about the two-talent man? The text goes on to say that he too, by using and putting into practice the two talents he had received, he had acquired two additional ones. The master again was highly pleased. He, in fact, in verse 23 said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. We may pause to observe A five-talent man, a two-talent man. Now, in the consideration of the application, we've already learned that the literal consideration was money. 
But we know in a broader consideration, in light of how the parable ends, he's talking about the utility of each person in light of his or her skills, anything that those things might touch. And yet, the five-talent man had been given more capacity, more capability, but he used it. Now, the two-talent man hadn't been given as much capacity. The capability was not quite as much, and yet he used what he had and was blessed marvelously, favorably. Might we pause to say, were their rewards in heaven identical and exactly the same? Well, you notice in the description of it, it was according to that which they had done. But what about the one-talent man? You notice he too had had opportunity He had one talent, not as much as the other two. But his choice was this. I knew that you were a hard man. I knew that you were a challenging man, and so I went and hid it. And it's still right where you gave it to me. The master himself said, out of your own words, I'll judge you. You knew I was a hard man. You knew I gathered where I had not strawed. You knew I wished to reap more than what I had given you. And in that light, verses 28 and 29 remind us, Thou wicked and slothful servant. Don't we appreciate then in light of the description of these something to be appreciated about the nature of reward in heaven? I would point out that this isn't the only parable that touches a subject like this one. In Luke 19, there's another one. It's the parable of the pounds. Now, these parables were different. They were not in every way the same. It's true, you can see some correspondence, but may we never think that the parable of the pounds is just a slight retelling of the parable of the talents. They are not the same. And this one, perhaps, in many ways, even highlights the subject of our time this morning even more clearly. There was, again, a man taking a journey into a far distant place, and he gave his servants... Pounds. In fact, to these servants, he gave ten pounds to ten servants. Suggestive of the fact each one had had been given a pound. The time came that he returned, and he had told them before he left, Occupy or put to use that which I've given you. And upon his return, he then reckoned with each one of them. One of them gained ten pounds. In other words, by interesting means, he had acquired far more than what the master had given him. Another one, you notice, had acquired fewer numbers of pounds. But in all those cases, the master was highly pleased and and offered a great reward. But did you notice? The reward was this. He gave to one man rulership over ten cities, to another rulership over a lesser number of cities, The reward, you see, was not the same in every case. As you close that particular parable, the teaching of the Master was again a very interesting one, and doesn't it point us to think about our application to heaven? Heaven is a sublime place. Again, far grander, I'm convinced, than even what our imagination is prepared to fully fathom here. But the New Testament in all these ways has seemingly pointed us to this truth. The reward that is in fact presented to us at the the nature of the judgment 
will be such that our appreciation of that glorious place will not be the same as everybody else. There are some that will receive a prophet's reward, others a righteous man's reward. The text in 1 Corinthians 3 is perhaps the final passage that we'll consider in, as we at least touch this initial part of our subject today. To the church in Corinth, Paul also described a situation where there was a person who, though he will have a lesser reward, will nonetheless enjoy a reward there. May I say, I think each of us in many ways would be excited at the thought of entering heaven, but isn't it true that our God is a God of justice and a God of equity and fairness, and He will render to every man according to his deeds. Now that side of the coin... The nature of the reward in heaven perhaps asks us, what about hell? To those who are cast in hell, to those who are consigned to that place, what about their final verdict? Will it be the same for everybody? Or will it too be such that for some it'll be worse? As bad as it's going to be, yet for some it'll be worse. What does the Bible teach? The next slide will move us into that direction by at least beginning to note this. May I suggest the same comment we had made earlier also touches this subject. If it's true that everyone will be judged according to his deeds, that each one will be judged according to his works, that will apply to this consideration just as easily as it will the former. The judgment, you see, will be rendered on that fateful day according to the deeds done in the body. Isn't it true that some sinners commit more heinous crimes? They touch in a more dramatic way the seriousness connected with the salvation of others. That's why false teachers are under such a terrible placement. James even said in James 3, 1, Be not many teachers or many masters, knowing we shall receive the greater damnation. A man who will lead precious souls to hell because he doesn't teach the truth. No matter how sincere he may be, no matter how convicted he may be of that error, he is causing others to travel down the roadway to a devil's hell. He's going to have to pay for that. He's going to have to give an answer for it. No wonder we begin to discuss the subject. What about in more general terms and tones? I've asked you to recollect with me this statement in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus, as He in fact made reference to the limited commission, this wording is found, and maybe we've read past this and haven't given it its due consideration. But in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 10, this statement occurs. Verily I say unto you, this is Jesus speaking, it shall be more tolerable, for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for this city. Now the wording is easy enough, isn't it? It's also very clear, it would seem, how to interpret this. Jesus, as He was making reference to the events of His own day, He said it's going to be more tolerable on the day of judgment. We know what day He's talking about. He hasn't left us to figure this out. On the day of judgment, it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the city of Capernaum. Now, you and I know Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. 
In Genesis 19, God rained fire and brimstone from heaven to consume that place. They were given to wickedness. They were given to ungodliness. They were given to a rebellion to the nature of what God had revealed. And God destroyed them, and yet Jesus said it'll be better for them on the day of judgment than for the city of Capernaum. Now, doesn't that indicate that at the judgment, even for those that are lost, even for those who have chosen not to submit to the nature of the Word of God, there will be a judgment according to that which they've done. There are some behaviors that are worthy of greater crime. What is it Capernaum had done that was so bad that ranked them worse than Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, again, the Lord makes it clear in this chapter what it is. A greater than any Old Testament person is here. Jesus the Christ preached in Capernaum. The grandeur of the only perfect one to ever live. And they had the nerve to reject Him. They had the nerve to turn their back on Him. And yet, as bad as it was to turn your back on other Old Testament characters, like Noah or David or one of the Old Testament prophets, to reject Jesus Christ in the face and in person. That's what Capernaum had done. Jesus again said in verse 15, more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for this city. In light of all of that, look even further. That wasn't the last time that kind of language occurs. One chapter forward in Matthew 11 In verses 20 and following, may I begin it like this. Then began He, that's Jesus, to upbraid the cities wherein most of His mighty works were done, because they repented not. The Son of God came teaching and preaching and setting forward the things of eternal truth. And it says that when He came to those cities in that time, He upbraided them. That means He rebuked them. He challenged them. He told them things need to change. And the text says, they repented not. They didn't have any interest in hearing what He had to say. And the following verse then says, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes." But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Did you notice then the Lord said, Here these people who were living at that time, they had greater obligation and greater opportunity because Jesus was there. And to reject Him was a more serious matter than rejecting, say, the man Ezekiel. The reason I say that is, mention is made here of Tyre and Sidon. Now, those were cities well known in Old Testament era, and yet the time was that Tyre especially was addressed in the writings of Ezekiel. Remember, Tyre was one who exalted itself. They thought no man could overcome or overwhelm them. They were located right near the coast, and they had walled their city especially, and they even had a a personal waterway 
that led out into the Mediterranean Sea. And so if the city was ever seriously attacked, they could just move over to the, to the island and they'd still be safe. They thought that they were simply undefeatable. And yet God gave this prophecy concerning them in Ezekiel 26, 27, and 28. Your pride is not going to save you. I'm going to destroy you and bring you down. And you and I know from history it happened. God did exactly what He said. And yet, when that city met its crushing defeat, you and I now notice the Lord Himself said it'll be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment than it will be for Chorazin and Bethsaida. Now, in fact, the Lord highlighted what He meant. If the things that have been seen by you had been seen by them, they would have repented. They would have had the correct thinking in mind to have done something about it. But you've rebelled and you've rejected and you have had no interest. Doesn't that remind us? The greater is our obligation, the greater is our capacity, the more severe will be the judgment if we have failed. That's why we have to be so alert to our talents and capabilities of whom God has given more, He expects the greater. What about you and me today? Doesn't it excite us to think that if we have dutifully done what we could with what we had, how sweet heaven shall be? But if we have failed in that regard, we notice, of course, the judgment will be in proportion to it. Let's close that list with Matthew 12, verse 41. The very next chapter, Jesus even has something addition to say. This time it has to do with Nineveh. Isn't it true in light of this? Matthew 12, verse 41, "...the men of Nineveh shall rise in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah." And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. You and I know well the story, the record of the book of, of Jonah in that God directed him to go and preach. And though he didn't at first, he finally did make it. And the sweet message is that city repented from the greatest to the least. And God spared them. He did not destroy them then. And yet Jesus says, the men of Nineveh are going to rise in the judgment and they're going to in fact declare a condemnation on this city, this generation, because they repented. A greater than Jonah's here and you haven't repented. What does that say about you and me today? Does that highlight again that even when it comes to the entrance into the place called torment, it too will have a varying degree Let's close that slide and entertain the next one by quickly observing that Jesus stated that again with respect to the Queen of Sheba. She came from a far distance and was impressed with the wisdom of Solomon. And Jesus said, one greater than Solomon is here. Might you and I never forget, there is no substitute for Jesus the Master. And what He says is absolute and He Himself said, the words that I say unto thee, it is that by which thou shalt be judged. John 12, verse 48. It is with that regard 
that if you find observations, and the lesson will be yours. These final observations surround two verses, one of which, Luke chapter 12, verse 48, the lesson text that Brother Wayne read just a moment ago. Near the close of that chapter, we have this rather interesting presentation. In verse 47, it begins by saying, And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. The scene the Lord describes is, here is an individual who has been given charge and obligation. He knew exactly what he was supposed to do, and he willfully chose not to do it, and the punishment will be great. Another servant could commit the very same thing, but if he did not know that he was not supposed to do it, he too will be punished, but not as severely. We seem to understand that in our walk of life. A child who didn't know any better but did what he ought not do is punished, but not as sorely, not as intensely as that child who knew exactly what he was not supposed to do and willfully did it anyway. He will be punished more severely. Jesus said that's how the judgment's going to be. Oh, how that reminds us then that there will be degrees, not only of reward in heaven, but of punishment in hell. Maybe one last idea, as I mentioned from that other passage. 2 Peter 2.21 Among those that will find their lot the worst, Peter's description points us to this. Consider the following consideration. A person learns the gospel and obeys it and proceeds to live a life in Christ and then at some future time comes to reject that life that he or she had once known. They turn back to live the way they once had, or maybe even worse. In that connection, Peter said it would have been better for that person never to have known the way of righteousness than after having known it to turn aside from it. Doesn't that teach us that the circumstance for that person at the judgment will be the worst imaginable? Because that person has forfeited the best and greatest of all, just like they of Capernaum did. A far greater than any human is what they've rejected. They knew the blessing of Christ, they knew the blessing of the church, and they knew the reward that Christ offers and willfully chose to rebel it against it. There are degrees of reward in heaven. There will be degrees of punishment in hell. To close this lesson that way, doesn't it bring us to a statement of conclusion? We've often been reminded of how great the idea of Bible questions and answers are and to utilize them to encourage ourselves to greater faithfulness. Surely we've learned in this lesson at the very least that the judgment is such a serious matter there will be no redoing it. I can't call for a mulligan that day. I can't beg, let me have another chance. This life is our time of preparation. This life is the time to be ready. This life is the time to make everything in order. Because surely at that sweet day of judgment, it will be one thing to 
be blessed with the entrance into heaven, but might we never forget, there will be rewards according to our deeds, according to the way we've used the talents and capacities we've got. Can you imagine the prophet's reward we read about in Matthew 10, verse 41? But on the other side of that consideration, as bad as hell will be, even the least of the punishments there will be eternally awful. And yet there are other stages or other appreciations in which the intensity will be grander. The horror will be greater. Today, as each of us consider ourselves, where do you and I stand before the judgment bar of God? Is all well with my soul and yours? If it is, may we continue this life of faithful living. But if it's not, now's the time to do something about it. This song of encouragement has been announced, and we'd like to stand in just a moment and sing the verses of it and allow this to be an opportune time. If we could be of assistance to someone in this audience today, we would be delighted to do that. And you could leave this structure today walking on the roadway to bliss in heaven, leaving behind the devil and his antics, the devil and his approaches, and you could give your life in faithful commitment to the Lord. If you need to become a Christian today, you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If, however, you have known that way of life, but at the moment are not faithful, you've lived in a way that's brought insult to your life, to the name of Christ, to the character of His church, you know that isn't right, and you know He has shed proverbial tears begging you to come back. But it has to be your decision. If you would like today to step out on the element of faith and to make acknowledgement of sins, repenting of them, of course, confessing them, He has promised to forgive, and we'd be honored to pray on your behalf. If we could be of some help today in these regards, we'd like to invite you to come now while together we stand and while we sing.